price drop? Time to shop. Get to a Nordstrom Rack store today for first dibs on new markdowns. Now score even more, up to 70% off brands everyone loves at Nordstrom Rack. Denim, dresses, sneakers, tops, and more. Plus, get genius deals on jackets, sweaters, and boots for the whole family. Shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and save up to 70% with new markdowns. But hurry, deals this great won't last. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. A roast as dark as the night. Perfect for fueling the cryptid research and mad ravings required for your podcasting. Don't mind the red eyes. He's just trying to warn you of the bridge. The bridge. Finally, from the caffeine-addled brains of Spring Hill Jack Coffee and last podcast on the left, we bring you Mothman's Red Eye Blend. Yes, delicious Panama beans. Go to lastpodcastmerch.com to order yours today. <laughs> What's this? What's this? An episode about what's this? What's this? The Nightmare Before Christmas. What's this? What's this? Tim Burton's movie that he didn't actually made. What's this? <laughs> it's a Nightmare Before Christmas, and I'm your wizard, Jack Skellington Wizard, Holden McNeely. What's this, Jake? Uh, 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 weird science. Woo! What? I am Danny Elfman, and I made what? friends with Tim Burton. Weird science. Dun, dun. Wait, what? Woo! Why a weird science? What are we doing? Then our friendship got weirdly intense, and then I basically wrote half this movie, and my girlfriend wrote the other half. Weird science. Weird science. (laughs) Blinded by science. That's Thomas Dolby. That's a different song, Holden. Do not confuse Blinded Me with Science with Weird Science. Those are two different (laughs) 80s-based science novelty songs. How dare you? I will die on this hill. I think I'm turning Japanese. I really think so. so. It's about jerking off. All right, everybody. Welcome to the podcast that you can't get enough of and you need to hear more of. And with today's episode, a holiday-themed one for the books. I'm glad we finally got to this, especially on the heels of our Hot Topic episode. Mm. I'm so happy we're covering Nightmare Before Christmas. I'm pretty sure I saw this in the movie theater with my father. I could be wrong, but I do remember being an early champion of this movie. Mm. And I it actually, to the point where it surprised me, that this movie was a sleeper hit that w- what did terribly at the box office. Cause I kind of remember always loving this film since it was first released and feeling like it was this tight, perfect little package loved the music in it. And I wasn't a big musical theater person back in the day, thought the music was awesome and unique and interesting and just felt like the whole thing just flew, uh, 
in this really, really great way. I mean, it did fly because it's like 70 minutes long, but that's It is a 120 minutes long, but you know what? That adds to it. And then I like the other thing, you know, we were having a discussion in our Sunday study group, the uh, Patreon $15 layer Discord Sunday study group, patreon.com forward slash whisper, whatever. But we were having a discussion about how like, oh, how do kids feel about this now, you know, now that we have all the CGI that we could ever need? But honestly, dude, I know for a fact my nephew-in-law, is that a thing? Mm-hmm. Um, this little boy obsessed with Nightmare Before Christmas. A little young, young boy, like what, maybe four or something, maybe something like that, three or four, and just... All he wanted to watch during uh, the Christmas season a couple years ago was uh, was Nightmare Before Christmas. And I think the reason why is that CGI will never replace the true raw creepiness and the very particular vibe of stop motion animation. And when you apply it to essentially the Hot Topic themed, you know, uh, ter- you know, creepy, deepy, but not actually creepy, deepy uh, vibe of Nightmare Before Christmas. There's a bloated corpse child with his eyes sewn shut featured yes. throughout the movie, Holden. I think it's just creepy. I think it's it just is, but creepy. it's never, it toes the line and we'll talk about that. Uh, there were some little fixes made to what they originally had just to watch out to not be too, too fucked up for the kiddies. I think they nail it. And I, I love this film and I, I think they just did such a good job of making something that's like creepy, but not creepy or like creepy, but palatable Mm -hmm. for so many people. It's, Hilariously, not Tim Burton's movie in a lot of ways, and we'll talk about that. I know it's called Tim Burton's Nightmare for Christmas. I think everyone assumed he directed it when he absolutely I did mean, not. I mean, there was no reason to believe that he didn't. It is. I thought he direct. I thought he directed it, which is crazy. I've seen it a million times, and I must have seen directed by Henry Selick in the end credits, but. It's still, I just didn't, I just decided that was like a fake, that was like a joke or something. The story, like the story of how the movie was made is kind of incredible because it was done during Tim Burton's like height of popularity and desirability when the guy could do no wrong. And like the fact that he kind of just kind of shunted this project, this leftover project from when he was like a younger intern, not intern, but like a assistant animator at Disney and then he like handed off to his old friends at Disney and then kind of was MIA for the most part. And everybody had to negotiate around Tim Burton at the height of his like entourage moment where he was like, uh-huh. you know, making hundreds of millions of dollars for major studios, was constantly jetting around the country on various projects. And like while do- while doing stop motion animation, which is legendary for some of the most backbreaking, mind-numbing, intense work that you can do in animation. There's like, uh, I out of curiosity, I looked, because stop motion is like, you know, the story of this movie, it's almost, it's, it's almost overdone how like, you know, you have to pose and take a picture and you have to build all the sets and you have to light the sets and you have to do everything just right because if even a single frame uh, is out of alignment or someone's clothing like flaps weird. You have to reshoot the entire scene. Uh, famously, you know, it would take an animator all day to shoot two seconds of footage. It would take the team of 100 plus people, uh, you know, a week to animate a single minute of footage. But, you know, something like uh, a Marvel movie, 
uh, you know, I'm quoting a random website, but, you know, it said that like 14,000 FX artists work on a, on Avengers Endgame. Yeah. And, you know, is it any more mindless to uh, recolor Captain America's suit because test audiences thought it looked too blue? Is it any more mind-numbing to chroma key, uh, you know, 800 Wakandan warriors? Like, you know, the um, uh, movies are full of mindless labor and, like, time suck, but... It's the fact that, like, you have to keep every frame in your head as you're shooting. There was no digital, like, uh, you know, check the copy back and forth. There was, you know, you have to just be steady. You have to be constantly moving. It's an intense, deliberate process that you can't just, like, put on a podcast and half-ass your way through. Uh, mm-hmm. Shout out to all my people out there right now half-assing at their de- at their job while listening to a podcast. <laughs> Hold it. Here's my here's one of my grand uh, uh, theories about this movie. Um, Jack Skellington is tired of his humdrum uh, day after day monotony. He has, uh, even though it is a spooky monotony, you know, it's he's tired of it. Everything's the same. He wants something more. This this world, these people he surrounded himself with aren't ex- aren't thrilling him. They aren't engaging him in the way that he wants to be. And so he stumbles across Christmas Town. And he gets exposed to this brand new aesthetic, this brand new way of being, this fashion, these traditions, this culture. And he immediately falls in love with it. But he doesn't understand it. He didn't grow up with it. He doesn't have any point of reference for like how it got to be this way. So he just kind of puts on the Santa hat and is like, is like, ah, yeah, it's like gifts and uh, chimneys and something or other. I don't know. I pretty much figured it out, though. And that is the exact story of every little kid that immediately got into goth culture because of this movie. <laughs> yeah, kind of. In, in, in this scenario, that. Hot Topic is Christmas Town, <laughs> and all the mall goths are Jack Skellington. It's just, what's this? What's this? The boots are oh so high. Like it's, <laughs> Somebody It needs, goes up to my thigh. Wait a second. Why did no one, has no one ever done a parody song that you're describing right now. That is perfect, Jake. It is so funny. Totally. And you're bumbling through it. Yeah. And, and, and you're you know, getting and, it wrong. You're getting it completely wrong. Yeah, you're getting wrong. it wrong. It's Blunder Years stuff that you're going to look back on and be like, oh my God, I can't believe I was a Jack Skellington trying to do Christmas at Christmas now. <laughs> and I love that, Jake. That is so perfect. And it really truly is that. It's this like, you just want to break out of your like normalcy. You're like being just this like, little kid or whatever and you want to just try to let your freak flag fly and so this is the perfect transition film and why Hot Topic made that like Jack Skellington like their fucking mascot for the longest time until they got the bone man band leader from My Chemical Romance's Black Parade which we also covered Uh, and yeah, it, it it's because it is this this little foray into and that like a lot of what I was thinking while I was watching it I'm like yeah, it is so just this like perfectly packaged thing for those people who like want to be edge but aren't yet or may never be actually but you can like kind of hide in this kind of aesthetic really well you know and be dark and brooding and be the weird one Mm -hmm. you know and maybe that's why I was drawn to this film so much because I was a weird one Mm -hmm. and I really really felt connected to the outcastiness of Jack Skellington, Halloween Town, and everything. And 
Yeah, definitely, definitely just absolutely love this film. The other kind of uh, thing that really kind of brings it up is the individual personalities and all the different kind of clashing brains that brought it together. As you said, Holden, despite the fact that it's Tim Burton's Nightmare Before Christmas, he basically just wrote this thing. Uh, the, the We'll get into it, but he wrote a poem and did some character sketches that was like, yeah. once upon a time, there was a skeleton guy and he had a smoke show of a cool Frankenstein wife and <laughs> he had a cool ghost dog. And then he did a Christmas and it was whoopsie doodle. Like it's it wasn't the things that make the movie uh, so memorable are things that were brought in by Henry Selleck, that were brought in by uh, the animation team, that were brought in by Danny Elfman and his performance and his songs and were brought in by Carolyn Thompson, the screenplay uh, writer. Uh, a lot of this information is kind of new. I was doing, I was reading a lot of behind the scenes like stories. I was, you know, a, a million different YouTube, like crazy facts about the making of uh, Nightmare Before Christmas. Right. The official documentary that they made for, uh, you know, is on YouTube and it's just, uh, Tim Burton standing around with a bunch of puppets like he did something <laughs> and, you know, Henry Selleck just being like, yep, this was uh, this was how it went down. But then this year, Netflix did a movies that made us special or I don't know, special. It's part of their series. And I'm always conflicted about that show because we're in the same business and it almost feels like cheating. Like it's literally <laughs> a show that takes disparate accounts and histories and forms it into a single narrative. But a lot of the stuff in that documentary and a lot of the interviews counteract the kind of series of events and the actual tensions between the creative uh -huh. team that was absolutely hidden from view, especially from the like official accounts. Yeah, I I also watched the the movies that made us dance. The first time I've ever watched it. I, I think that's largely because like it feels too much like work mm -hmm. to watch a show like that. It's like kind of the nature of my work. Is, is that sort of thing, so I don't want to watch that on my off time. Um, and I will say I was worried going into it, and I actually feel quite confident that uh, we can keep doing our thing uh, because the... Man, I can't stand that that kind of. Editing. Oh yeah, it no. When they try to be funny stops, and add they, little yeah, clips, yeah, yeah, they're that too. Well, I guess we do that too. But hopefully, you but guys it's think it's funny. We like our quips because they're <laughs> our quips. Damn it! I'm Mr. Balls for lips. Oh <laughs> my god! Netflix could never. Netflix was <laughs> too scared to give us um, Doctor Boner Frog Boner pants <laughs> is that a character we made up did we yeah, do that it was one? something like no boner bird and mr frog pants the man hey it's me it. boner pants <laughs> i mean yeah yeah that's right we did do that one on the look i'm just saying we're hilarious right yeah. and that that show's not at all very funny to me and um but also the the whiplash fucking editing man it's like dude just let the camera stay on any person for more than two seconds, please. I'm getting it. Make my eyes hurt. It was like my eyes rolled into the up into the back of my head. I they were editing so quickly. Anyways, the, though, I digress. The thing that that really opened my eyes was that they laid out the actual dynamics between yeah. uh, Tim Burton, uh, Danny Elfman, the composer, and Oingo Boingo Headman. Uh, Main uh, lead singer, not headman. I don't know. What that <laughs> is. Uh, his girlfriend at the time, Carolyn Thompson, and uh, just like how all these egos and relationships clash together because uh, we end up with something that is kind of way beyond Tim Burton's poem because it's Danny Elfman writing these songs before a screenplay was even written. Yeah. 
That's the most surprising probably thing to me besides Tim Burton didn't direct this movie is that there was no script for like a large amount. I think like a year of the production pro- of the two year production process was Zippo script involved. They were just basing off the songs. And then the script really ended up coming in way later because they got a sort of like Stephen King light who was just fucking slamming so many rails of cocaine. They were just calling him fucking, uh, you know, Mr. Ski Slope. They, yeah, the quote is he snorted his salary and fucked up. He, I think he wasn't, He was trying to write the next Cujo, right? That was the movie that uh, mm-hmm. Stephen King claims that he re- he doesn't remember writing. He was on so much cocaine and drinking so much and everything. Uh, but uh, instead, he just didn't write anything uh, practically. And uh, but he was the writer for Beetlejuice, and uh, he's a horror, horror writer in his own right. So that just wasted so much time that they had to slapdash the, the whole thing together. And I will say, what's funny is as tight and like seamless and constantly moving as that movie is from a structural standpoint, and it got a lot of criticism from like Roger Ebert and people like that. Uh, uh, you know because of this structurally as a script it is actually not like um very good in in a traditional sense like in a traditional film structure sense and the songs traditionally which is again why i think i love it so much and what makes it so good and uh interesting all the songs are very like a guy who's never written a musical before mm-hmm. writing a musical right they're 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 just not traditional in that sense, and I love that about it. such a breath of fresh air. So much of it sounds it's a musical, but it doesn't feel like a fucking musical. And I think that we need more of that as well. I love musicals like that. That's my favorite kind of thing. It's when I, it's almost fate that the movie that started with Danny Elfman writing his own musical uh, that when he was going through a tough time in his life ends up becoming like. I want something more. <laughs> I feel trapped and real weird. I want to do a lot of things and I want to stop doing the things that I'm doing. Like very, like it's very personal to him. He'll say as much. Um, and then the screenplay is written by his own girlfriend at the time. Yeah. Who then having nothing really to do because the songs have laid out the plot of the movie already. Right. She just focuses a lot the on the character of Sally, the mm-hmm. forlorn girlfriend of the main character who's going through a crisis and in that like Sally could have only come from uh Carolyn Thompson who is a horse girl she's quiet she's like snarky she's like an every she's like the exact kind of girl who would date a musician or a Tim Burton in high school and you know she has to she's from a controlling family she has like weird body issues uh, she knows that like the object of her love is making a lot of dumb decisions and she's trying her best to like protect him from the consequences of those decisions. That is like uh, it's the other half of the movie that creates the hot topic mall goth uh, like girl. Because without that very real perspective that is like nowhere else. You know, Sally is not a Disney princess. She is, like, way more real in a lot of ways Uh than uh, a character in an animated movie ever would. And if you are a girl that's going through issues, going through your own shit with your fucked up boyfriend and your weird ass parents that are, like, being kind of abusive towards you, this movie is, like, your only lifeline. It's the only thing that's even acknowledging your existence. So, of course, this movie becomes your entire deal. 
Oh, yeah, God. I, I'm just dropping hypotheses like it's no tomorrow. I love it. Jake, let's get into it. The making of Nightmare Before Christmas proper. And my God, the tale will terrify you to your very bones. Or should I say, happy holidays, everybody. It is a great Thanksgiving movie. Yes. Because it's not It's not quite a Halloween movie and it's not quite Christmas. It's just... Just, it's just a vibe. It's just a autumn to winter vibe movie. It's a whole mood. Let's talk about it. Uh, so, of course, I mean, do we even need the synopsis? 1993, the film came out. Stop motion animated musical directed by Henry Selick, not Tim Burton, who produced and conceived of it. And it's all about how Jack Skellington, the king of Halloween town, finds Christmas town and wishes to bring the holiday back to his creepy, spooky homeland Halloween town. Danny Elfman did the songs. The wow, score, that synopsis and... does not mention the role of a talking sack of bugs. <laughs> it does or not. Or a weird little boy voiced by Paul Rubens. Or well, uh, we'll talk about. Well, oh, we're gonna get into that. Or the Jay, U.S. military. There's a lot of things that that <laughs> synopsis just kind of rolls past. <laughs> I'm sorry. This film also features a very, very brief moment from the U.S. military. <laughs> uh, and you're right, I should have added that to <laughs> the synopsis. I'm sorry, Mr. Boner Pants Man con- uh, distracted me and I couldn't remember. You know what I mean? So we're pretty funny though, guys. You want to check us out? We're good guys. We're good guys. April, please add some <laughs> wacky sound effects to let everyone know that we're being funny. <laughs> yeah, baby, yeah! Yep, here's a silly hammer sound. <laughs> And now we're good to go. Um, All right, here we go. Let's start with Tim Burton. A brief synopsis. I feel like he could get its own episode. I feel like we need to do a Beetlejuice episode. And we need to do do all sorts of episodes revolving around one Tim Burton. Love that he's a rage machine, by the way. We'll talk about that in a little bit. That he's just this fucking maniac. (laughs) It's kind of fun as well. No, no, Holden. You're thinking of someone else. Tim Burton is the quiet, misunderstood, goth man, genius boy. The little precocious dark elf. What do you mean an actual adult man with control and anger? (laughs) (laughs) I love how this whole beginning is like, yeah, he's this, he's a loner Dottie, a rebel. And uh, he's this little like quiet loner shy boy. And then it's like cut to him kicking a hole in the uh, fucking (laughs) animation studio wall and just losing his mind very irrationally, might add, over the mere suggestion that they might have a different ending uh, for, (laughs) for the film. I mean, they they and they did an animatic. They voiced it like they were ready. To, Henry Selick was like ready to go on that, and I'd be pissed so too because if they'd stuck with that ending, it would be bullshit. It would have been dumb. We'll get we'll get, we'll get to get the there. ending in question in a little while. But either way, Burton grew up. Uh, right right there in Burbank, California, and was making short films in his backyard as a young boy, a lot of it using stop-motion animation. He wasn't a great student or very social, and he felt like an outcast growing up and just enjoyed painting and drawing and watching films in his free time. Uh, he also loved holidays, later saying, anytime there was Christmas or Halloween, it was great. It j- gave you s- some sort of texture all of a sudden that wasn't there before. And if actually, well, funnily enough, a lot of his early film, like I think Nightmare Before Christmas was like the fourth film he had made at that point that had Christmas in it. Like holidays do end up in his movies quite often, which is interesting. Uh, and uh, yeah, he also loved stop motion. So he was really enjoying those old TV specials. And we'll talk more about him in a little bit. Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, all that kind of stuff. Uh, uh, and uh, yeah, after high school, 
Burton goes to the California Institute of the Arts, also known as CalArts, to study character animation. While there, he makes some shorts, including Stock of the Celery Monster, which was directed and animated entirely in pencil by Burton back in 1979. Now, you can catch a weird slap-together version of this on YouTube. It's really interesting. It's it's uh, it's loosely strung together because the actual print has been considered lost. Mm. So uh, this is a kind of a, a the best they could get of what that was, and it's really cool looking, especially for like a college kid just starting out in his career. And it's so cool looking; it impresses the class and the teachers so much. Disney ends up getting wind of it. Walt Disney Animation Studios offers Tim Burton an apprenticeship based on this short. And uh, Burton ends up with them uh, making a short stop motion film called Vincent, a loving tribute to Vincent Price. Also, this is on YouTube. Really cool to look at if you're interested in the early works of Tim Burton. Uh, Vincent Price narrated it himself. And it's really cool. This establishes their relationship. Obviously, Vincent Price was in Edward Scissorhands. And um, he said that this was like this short that Tim Burton made was like one of the greatest kind of things that had ha- happened to him in his career, like better than getting an award or anything that that he did this for him was this incredible thing. Because uh, Vincent um, was a kind of this collaboration with him and a lot of uh, the, the friends he was making, although he was bad at making friends during this Disney apprenticeship uh, where he got to meet uh, Rick Heinrichs, who was this uh, art, you know, a fellow animator, but who also had a really solid gift for taking Tim Burton's kind of inky, twisted drawings and translating them into a three-dimensional form. It was kind of the Nightmare Before Christmas look is definitely born from their collaboration because it is a hard look to master. Everything's kind of off kilter. Everything looks like it shouldn't even be able to stand. As opposed to, you know, if you think of previous stop motion animation, like Gumby, uh-huh. this kind of thin, frail, decayed look. It was like a very unique thing. Also, you got to understand, this was absolutely the dark ages of Disney. Yes. You know, the studio didn't know what they wanted. The audiences weren't reacting well. So, like, while Tim Burton was supposed to be at his dream job, he was working on stuff like The Fox and the Hound and The Black Cauldron and Tron. I mean, Tron proved pretty rad. But, you know, yeah, uh, he was literally churning out concept art that was just too weird and did not fit the Disney aesthetic enough. Uh, You know, he would talk about how he just could not draw cute enough. He literally could not even adapt his art style into something that would at least fit inside of a Disney movie. And just for some context here, because you, of course, immediately associate the look if you look at Vincent. Uh, you immediately associate that and a lot of the Tim Burton's, all of Tim Burton's work with goth culture, right? Well, I mean, we're talking about the early 80s. Uh, goth culture was just ha- starting to happen mm-hmm. around this time. So even Disney can't even look at what he's doing and associate it with anything quite yet, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, people people say, you know, maybe a precursor was like Joy Division, uh, stuff like that. Um, th- that's like late 70s, early 80s. And, you know, you don't have a bunch of kids dressed up like The Cure necessarily just yet well, in, in modern is, culture. Was Tim Burton goth or was Tim Burton just a weird kid who loved the Munsters? You know what I mean? Like, was he right. even goth or was well, it just that? what I'm saying is Disney can't look at what he's doing and be like, oh, this is like there's a whole culture of people that are going to be into this. Oh, no, yeah. No, 
yeah, he's yeah. just making weird, dark shit. And they're like, we can't do anything with this. This isn't fucking Sleeping Beauty. Like, I don't know what the, I don't know what to do with this. It's mm. like they stripped all the he stripped all the good guys out, and it's just the villains. Which again, precursor to all every every villain origin film that's coming out <laughs> these days. So yeah, they can't can't quite place the guy and. He's he's sort of shuffling around doing different things. They end up uh, uh, losing them all together. But while he's at Disney, uh, he decides to write a poem. And this poem definitely based on his love of those old TV specials. Like I mentioned, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. Um, that was a special that first debuted in 1964 by Rankin Bass Productions known for its borderline creepy doll-like characters and a powdery snow animation technique that used projection to create a snowfall effect. And, of course, we've ended up, we weirdly just all as a society now watch it every single year, and we always go like, this is kind of creepy. What's going on with it? Why do I feel weird watching this thing? Because it's stop motion, stop motion is naturally creepy. Also, The Grinch Who Stole Christmas. He was a big uh, Roald Dahl and Dr. Seuss fan growing up. Highly inspired by them. So, of course, he loved the How the Grinch Stole Christmas animated special like we all do. Uh, that that had a big influence. And then, of course, just straight up the poem, A Visit from St. Nicholas. As we know that poem, generally, uh, I think I've always just called it Twas the Night Before Christmas. Yeah. But it is that poem. Twas the Night Before Christmas and all through the house. Not a creature was stirring, not even a mouse. That whole thing. And he kind of puts the three concepts into a pot, essentially, and he writes this poem. And Jake... I would like to read some of this poem. Oh yeah, uh, to our listening audience. Um, I I would also say that um, the character of Jack Skellington, this kind of hollow-eyed skull man with kind of a stitchy mouth, uh, shows up a lot in his earlier illustrations. Uh, there's a character that looks very similar in Vincent, next to a uh, kind of bodacious Frankenstein lady that would later become uh, Sally in the movie. And uh, also, in a weird way, the Martian lady in Mars Attacks, he's got a thing for whatever that early Sally, curvy, uh, undead lady vibe is. Yeah, he's like yeah. super living dead yeah, girl. Yeah, he wants that. Justin, and so good. Thousands of spring deals at your Nordstrom Rack Store. Save big today on new arrivals from Kate Spade, New York, Nike, Sam Edelman, Free People, and Madewell, starting at only $30. Great brands and great prices on dresses, denim, sandals, designer bags, and more. So rack your look and get first dibs on spring styles you want now from just $30 at your Nordstrom Rack Store. What will you find? Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. So here's a couple of little sections from this. It's quite long, so I, uh, I'll, uh, I'll abridge it a little bit, but uh, I'll start from the top and we'll jump around a little bit. It was late one fall in Halloween land, and the air had quite a chill. Against the moon, a skeleton sat alone upon a hill. He was tall and thin with a bat bow tie. Jack Skellington was his name. He was tired and bored in Halloween town. Everything was always the same. I'm sick of the scaring, the terror, the fright. I'm tired of being something 
that goes bump in the night. I'm bored with leering my horrible glances, and my feet hurt from dancing those skeleton dances. I don't like graveyards, and I need something new. There must be more to life than just yelling, boo! Then out of out from a grave, with a curl and a twist, came a whimpering, whining, spectral mist. It was a little ghost dog with a faint little bark, and a jack-o'-lantern nose that glowed in the dark. It was Jack's dog, Zero, the best friend he had, but Jack hardly noticed, which made Zero sad. So you already have Zero the dog. You have all that good stuff. Can I tell you, by the way, when you realize that Zero's nose is, in fact, a little jack-o'-lantern for the first time, (laughs) because on VHS, it was blurred out completely, and I never noticed. (laughs) That's just a a fun thing. That's just a fun thing that... uh, you might not have realized about Nightmare Before Christmas. So you also even have the the different doors leading to the different towns. Not 20 feet from the spot where he stood were three massive doorways carved in wood. He stood before them completely in awe, his gaze transfixed on one special door, which is one of the only non-rhyming couplets in this entire thing. No, which is odd weird. door. <laughs> Jack didn't know it, but he'd fallen down in the middle of a place called Christmas Town, And so he falls in love with Christmas Town, uh, And then he decides to go back to Halloween Town, back in Halloween. Halloween, a group of Jack's peers stared in amazement at the Christmas souvenirs. For this wondrous vision, none were prepared. Most were excited, though few were quite scared. For the next few days, while it lightninged and thundered, Jack sat alone and obsessively wondered, why is it they get to spin la- spread laughter and cheer while we stalk the graveyard, spreading panic and fear? Uh, and uh, so he decides to adopt uh, uh, Christmas for themselves. They... They steal Santa Claus away so that he can replace him. And he even does a parody of the poem, Twas the Night Before Christmas. Here we go. Uh, Well into the poem. Many, many couplets in. Twas the night before Christmas and all through the house. Not a creature was peaceful, not even a mouse. The stockings all hung by the chimney with care. When open that morning would cause quite a scare. The children all nestled so snug in their beds would have nightmares of monsters and skeleton heads. The moon that hung over the new fallen snow cast an eerie pall over the city below. And Santa Claus's laughter now sounded like groans and the jingling bells like chattering bones. And what to their wondering eyes should appear but a coffin sleigh with skeleton deer and a skeletal driver so ugly and sick they knew in a moment this can't be saint nick and uh so of course they terrorize earth and then uh jack does end up getting shot down by the u.s military <laughs> uh uh then amidst the barrage of artillery fire jack urged zero to go higher and higher and away they all flew like the storm of a thistle until they were hit by a well-guided missile <laughs> and as they fell on the cemetery way out of sight was heard merry christmas to all and to all a good night uh, and it, it resolves pretty quickly after that with uh, Santa Claus essentially being freed and telling Jack, you know, I appreciate the effort, but uh, this is kind of our holiday. Back home, Jack was sad, but then like a dream, Santa brought Christmas to the land of Halloween is the end of that poem. So go check that out. It's it's uh, I skipped around a little bit uh, to, just for the sake of brevity, but it's got all that stuff in there. It's got zero. Funnily enough, it doesn't have, um, what's her name? Sa- uh, Sally. Sally in it. It has zero. It has Santa getting kidnapped. There's no boogeyman, uh, nothing like that, but you do have the military shooting him down. You have the... The uh, Halloween Town kind of not getting it exactly. No Glenn Shattuck's mayor. They did not even, the name Glenn Shaddix appears nowhere in this poem. No Glenn Shaddix mayor. By the way, guys, just to let you guys know, Jake is the leader of the Glenn Shaddix fan club, and he's very hype about Glenn Shaddix. Uh, everybody should be. He fucking ruled. The world is uh, poorer for being without him. Um, <laughs> so 
Tim Burton, uh, you know, uh, laid out some sketches. He wrote the poem and he presented it to Disney uh, for the purposes of like, hey, what if we made like a fun holiday special or I don't know, a TV thing or something? I don't know. Definitely not a movie. Obviously, there isn't enough here for a movie. But like, that's my pitch. That's my big idea. You brought me on. I'm like an apprentice. You're like down with my cool vibes. You liked Vincent. How about it? And Disney said, no. Uh, we don't know what to do with this. We don't really do TV stuff. We don't do any of this. I'm, we're still just trying to, uh, you know, we're real. We're desperately trying to get Oliver and company off the ground. God damn it! Right? Uh, do you know any? Do you know any Billy Joel songs? We can have a dog sing. How about that? <laughs> <laughs> uh, is what Disney was thinking at the time. And so, uh, is there a singing dog in the movie? <laughs> where's my cocaine? I'm. Uh, where's my cocaine? I don't know who was the president at the time. I was going to say Jeffrey Katzenberg is literally just beating a man to death in the other room. <laughs> I'm Jeffrey Katzenberg, and I need. I demand a singing dog in the movie and some more cocaine, please. Uh, and uh, you know, Tim Burton kind of goes off on his own, and he makes some more short films, and he kind of hits it big with Paul Rubens directing Pee Wee's Big Adventure. Yes, uh, and one of the. Besides the amazing comedy, the amazing large march sequence, uh, all the great bicycle uh, hilariousness, uh, both Paul Rubens and Tim Byrne are huge fans of the band Oingo Boingo, which I want to describe as Devo for even bigger theater kids. But uh, the fact is they trucked along, they had their own vibe, and uh, they kind of resonated with this kind of California outsider uh, dudes that Rubens and Burton were. And, you know, uh, supposedly, according to the, the interviews, uh, Elfman was like going to turn it down because he was like, I, I'm a theater rock man. I don't yeah. do movie scores. What are you talking about? And his agent was like, if you want to turn it down, you have to pick up the phone and deny it yourself. And uh, weird, shy Elfman was like, uh, that sounds scary. All right, I'll do it. Yeah, Elfman was born and raised in Los Angeles. He was obsessed with his local movie theater growing up, so he was a bit, bit of a film buff, especially when it came to sci-fi, fantasy, and horror films, and uh, did really love their musical composition. So it's weird that he, he was sort of subconsciously made for this, even though he didn't realize it at that time. And uh, he, after high school, ends up traveling the world in an avant-garde musical theater group and busking as, as well to make ends meet. And then he returns to L.A. and his brother pulls him in to serve as a musical director for this street theater performance art troupe called the Mystic Knights of Oingo Boingo. And these performances were later adapted into an amazing film. Definitely check it out. It's called Forbidden Zone. Uh, and Elfman, actually, technically, that was his first school. He did the score for that film, though, again, I think he just he didn't consider it like a real score job, I guess, because it was this weird indie alt bizarro project. And it was really just an adaptation of what they had been doing in this theater troupe. And uh, he's in that film uh, as the character Satan. And he also created a band from that original theater troupe, obviously called Oingo Boingo. They stripped down the members and became this successful alt weird thing this very like post-punk 
new wave thing. And uh, Tim Burton and Paul Rubens, just huge fans, like you said. And that's how they end up pulling him in. And the rest is history, right? I mean, I, I, you probably know this, but Danny Elfman ends up becoming lifelong, you know, working partner with uh, uh, Tim Burton. And uh, yeah, just, and, and I mean, come on, that Pee Wee Herman score is like unbelievable. The Pee Wee Herman score, the Simpsons theme. I mean, the amount of Beetlejuice, movies he's been, yeah. Beetlejuice, he's, he's uh, Batman, uh, all, all, all that they, they do together. And so, uh, yeah, that, that this project would end up being no different, even though, of course, Tim Burton is more just producer in, instead of a writer. I mean, he's even done shit like Mission Impossible, Goodwill Hunting, Men in Black. Yeah. I didn't pull up a list it's just crazy. now while you were talking. Why we would you even suggest that? Men in Black. Uh-uh. Something, something, Men in Black. Uh-uh. I might actually know all the lyrics to Men in Black. <laughs> give, it, give me some. Give me the rap. Give me what, some of the rap. Galaxy Defenders. Here comes the Men in Black. Men in Black. Won't let you remember. Now just bounce with me. Just bounce with me. <laughs> now slide. Slide. Wait, slide, what? Slide. What? Now you're just doing like the... the uh, that's not in the song, is it? You're just doing like a wedding ceremony. And let DJ. me tell you this in closing. I know I might seem imposing, but listen, we have a show in your section. Believe me, okay. it's for your own protection because we see things that you may not see and we be places that you need not be. Whoa. So Dan- forget the Roswell crap because we're the men in. <laughs> fuck, I lost what it. The I lost fuck, it. Jake? That's so funny. Well, I don't think he wrote that song. No, so he had nothing to do with it. This was a waste of time. Complete waste of your time. <laughs> and it, we're still wasting your time by talking about how it's a waste of time. So just know that you're sitting in an absolute nexus of time suck right now. There's no point to any of this. Go on. <laughs> but uh, Elfman and Burton, they are on top of the world. Beetlejuice, a big head. Pee Wee Herman, a big head. Edward Scissorhands, a big head. It's a hot Batman, a gigantic hit. And Disney finally is like, shit, this guy is making money for everyone but us. And we had him. What is wrong with us? Jeffrey Katzenberg is literally just unleashing an Uzi in the middle of a cafeteria. He does not. Everybody's pissed. So they bring in uh, Tim Burton. Oh, no, no, wait, no, I'm sorry. It was Tim Burton went to Disney. Yeah, he just wanted the right. So weirdly, Disney ended up maintaining the rights for the project because he had been working on it. And so he goes to them and is like, I still want to do something with this thing. So can I get the rights back? They're like, oh, no, no. <laughs> we will help you make this thing happen because you are weirdly creating a lot of money in this business. <laughs> and we don't understand why. But we're going to stick with it because we're kind of floundering right now. And so they do allow him to you know they 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 take it on and and pump the money into it and uh but he doesn't actually want to direct his own this project essentially uh he is given carte blanche on batman returns and so that is a big priority for him. Also, though, stop motion is laborious. He knows this by this point. He's done very short film projects that probably took you know Months and months and, and hours and hours to put together just to do Vincent, which is like a six minute thing. So he's like, I got to give this to someone else. And actually, back when he was working at Disney, he had been showing, uh, letting in a man named Henry Selick 
in on his project. So he was already acquainted with the work. Selleck was an avid drawer starting at the age of three, opting to do not much else all through his childhood years, especially inspired by the stop motion film, The Adventures of Prince Ahmed and the animated creatures in the film, The Seventh Voyage of Sinbad. After bopping around studying art at various colleges, he enrolls at CalArts for animation, which got him in at Disney, starting as an in-betweener. We've talked about that before. It's kind of your first animation gig. You sort of just fill in the blanks in between movements of uh, the animator. On the uh, and that was his first gig was on the film Pete's Dragon, and he was a full-on animator for Disney, starting with the film The Fox and the Hound, which again dates Disney in that time period where they just had no idea what they were doing. That That's kind of... The Fox and the Hound is that, like, that film that marks the, like, bizarro years for That Disney. name has come up uh, several times because in our... Uh, uh, what was we didn't do an episode on Brad Bird, right? What did we do an episode where we had to cover a lot? Oh, Iron Giant. Uh, that came up yeah. in the Iron Giant episode, and it came up in our Don Bluth episode. This was a weird yes. time for Disney where all these, you know, larger than life animation wunderkinds who are so inspired by Disney were kind of forced to like have to work for the studio at their lowest point. And that gave birth to a lot of spinoff creatives, as we've kind of established at this point. Henry Selleck loved the project, feeling he had, quote, a natural affinity for the tone, which was scary but fun. And doing it in stop motion was by far the best medium to carry on with that tone. I think stop motion is inherently a little creepy, with things moving on their own. But it's also with the designs of characters being a little cartoony, so it's almost as if toys come to life, which is also slightly creepy. So, uh, yeah, they, they Disney decides, hey, but we can go for something a little more edgy. They had just had a lot of success with the film Who Framed Roger Rabbit. And, and Jeffrey Katzenberg, Mr. Fucking Blocane himself, felt the film would be a great showcase for the technical achievements uh, that they could put on display as a company. It also, oh, wait, uh, just Henry Selleck at the time was also uh, the right mix of a good friend of Tim Burton. So Tim Burton knew he could trust him. And uh, Henry Selleck had been a journeyman stop motion animator animator at the time. He was making a pretty piss poor living doing kind of uh, freelance commercial gigs. He did a lot of famous uh, MTV bumpers. Uh, basically, if you remember an early 90s MTV stop motion animated bumper, that was him. He also was the man who animated the Pillsbury Doughboy. Ah. So uh, if you ever wonder, if you ever wondered, hey, why does the Oogie Boogie Man look kind of familiar? It's because they were both animated by the same uh, by the same guy who did the Pillsbury Doughboy. That is funny. Hoo-hoo. Uh, Burton then hires Michael McDowell to adapt the poem into a screenplay. McDowell was a writer who was obsessed with death. Uh, he wrote the initial screenplay for Beetlejuice. However, this choice proved to be problematic. Caroline Thompson has hilarious quotes. By the way, Danny Elfman's girlfriend at the the time who wrote ended up writing the screenplay. She does not suffer fools. Uh, she does not take any shit. And I would actually be terrified to be locked in a room with her, according to just the way she she gives quotes. Uh, when it was time to turn in the script, Michael McDowell, who had a serious drug problem, I guess snorted his salary and didn't write, and he delivered nothing. Their creative differences lead to uh, uh, Burton bringing in Danny Elfman, and this is how we end up with a, um, a, a no script and just a bunch of songs that they then just get to work animating at that point. Uh, so, oddly uh, enough, yeah. Carolyn did write the screenplay for Edward Scissorhands, Yes. But then pissed uh, Tim Burton off because uh, I, I believe it was she was giving direction or character motivation to Johnny Depp 
because Tim Burton wasn't around and Johnny Depp was like, you're the writer, right? What am I actually supposed to be doing in this scene? And she was like, uh, I don't know, like this. And Tim Burton was like, did you just give my fucking actor direction? Yes, yeah. It's, it's such a Hollywood story of like doing a thing you had no idea you weren't supposed to do and then getting blackballed for fucking years for it by the your working partner. I mean, honestly, Tim Burton is kind of a vengeful man, as we'll get to learn. Uh, he's insane. He's a t- he's horrifying. He's a, he's a rage animal is what he is. The production of this movie caused such a schism between uh, Carolyn and Danny Elfman and Burton that uh, Burton literally uh, decided to stop using Danny Elfman when it came to score Ed Wood. Uh, They gave it to Howard Shore afterwards because they were like not on speaking terms after all the kind of malarkey that went down on that set. Uh, apparently over a cup of coffee, they made amends and have since had a lovely working relationship. Elfin did have this, though, also to say about the experience. The great thing about the experience of creating Nightmare is neither of us had any idea how to create a musical. Most animated musicals of that era, this era really, the songs feel like they come from pop or Broadway. I felt very strongly, and Tim agreed, that these songs should try to find a kind of timeless place that's not contemporary, even though I knew critics would skewer me for it. My influences were were going from Kurt Weill to Gilbert and Sullivan to early Rodgers and Hammerstein. He would come over and tell me a little bit of the story and show me some drawings, and I'd go write a song, and three days later, he'd listen. We were completely on our own, and there wasn't a script yet, so we just started telling the story in songs. We were feeling our way through it without knowing what we were doing, and of course, that always makes for the best experiences. And of course, uh, Elfman really pushed to play Jack Skellington himself, and Tim Burton allowed it at first. Elfman felt super drawn to this character, and the reason is very obvious if you know a little bit about his history. This is right around the time he was sort of the king of his own Halloween town, but he was the not the king of Halloween town. He was the front man of a band called Oingo Boingo, and he could kind of take it or leave it. You know, a lot of musicians and performers, they are drawn to the stage. They need it. They're addicted to it. They can never fully quit it. Elfman was not that way. He had a horrible stage fright, didn't love necessarily performing or the touring life. He didn't like any of it and was ready to get out from under Oingo Boingo. Felt a little crushed under the weight of it. And so he was looking to find his own new path in life and uh, break free from what he'd been just trapped in essentially for the last several years as frontman of Oingo Boingo. So yeah, he was his own little Jack Skellington. And so a lot of the songs and a lot of the just a lot of the motivation and and uh, vibe of of that character really comes from Elfman just trying to get away from his own band. Uh, so yes, he's he's uh, he he is the singer of all the songs in the film. I mean, literally, like just listen to the lyrics from Jack's Lament. Uh, yeah, uh, there are few who deny at what I do. I am the best for my talents are renowned far and wide. But when it comes to surprises in the moonlit night, I excel without even trying. With the slightest little effort of my ghost-like charms, I have seen grown men give out a shriek. Yada, yada, yada. Yet year after year, it's the same routine, and I grow so weary of the sound of screams. Uh, yeah, that's that completely him just talking about being in his own band and being a victim of his own success. So they're in full production at this point, but without a script, just the songs. Michael McDowell's script is a total turkey. He essentially just, it was like barely a thing. He he, he even just... Ad- Transcribed lyrics from the songs. Yeah, he just... <laughs> 
He just, he, he had nothing. Burton Elfman and Selick then turned to Caroline Thompson, who uh, Elfman was living with at the time, and, to finish the script. Thompson handed it over to Danny Elfman on a couple's retreat. I gave Danny the script on the retreat, and he said, oh no, that's terrible. That's not what I've had in mind at all. And I was like, sorry, it's not about you. Yeah. Danny, you fuck-faced fuck. And then she pushed him off a cliff. But luckily, there was a trampoline at the bottom, and he bounced right back up and was like, wow, you're a crazy lady. Okay, so (laughs) this is, Caroline really does just kind of introduce uh, the character of Sally. Because in the original drawings, she's kind of a femme fatale. She's kind of just this big, busty, uh, spooky Frankenstein lady. And the entire dynamic with her and uh, what's the prof- Dr. Finkelfankel, Dr. Evil. He's literally just called Evil Scientist, uh, Dr. Finkelstein. Yeah, Dr. Finkelstein. Um, in the credits, he's just called Evil Scientist. Finkelstein, Einhorn, Einhorn, Finkelstein. Anyways, go on. And Sally is, I, like I said in the beginning, she's this tragic figure who's into like toxic herbology and escaping from her controlling father and is like trying in vain to get the attention and like uh the the heed jack as he's going on these follies it's a very unique perspective it's a very kind of it's it's the other side of the coin of the gender coin for uh the entire tone of the movie it flips completely to a whole new pov where compared to uh you know Elfman's like rock star on Wii and like child and childlike glee. There is like a very, there's a certain level of maturity and darkness that is more than just like, hey, look, this guy's got an axe in his head. Ah, <laughs> look at this. Or, you know, instead it's like, hey, sometimes the people that are supposed to be your family, even though they say they love you, are actually toxic. Like it's fucking great. Like that's yeah. darker shit. She also added the the two faced mayor, much to Danny Elfman's chagrin. It wasn't like super political. Uh, added that whole concept yeah. of you know a politician that's got you know got that nice face and the sh- and hiding the shitty face behind him. That that all these little touches that I think a lot of people love about the film. She added throughout, even though she also says. The songs really did the heavy lifting yeah. for her. She just kind of filled in the gaps as well in a lot of ways. But they finally have a script. And they'd already been working on the project for a year. I, I can't believe how long they went without actually having a, a finished script to work off of. But uh, they have a team of over 120 working on this project using 20 different sound stages to get the job done. And they were called Skellington Productions. Selick said, I built this team of animators, set makers, and lighters who I'd been working with on television commercials and MTV spots. I made all those people supervisors and we grew a studio in a couple of old warehouses and basically made the film there. I was there for three and a half years. Tim would come visit and we would send all the footage to him, but it was remarkable. We were just, we were utterly left alone to make the movie we made. And I, I forget what other projects we've talked about that were like this, but another key to success seems if you want to make a really interesting new IP and get funding for it and have it be a big success... Make sure you are physically located far away from any powers that be that might uh, actually uh, uh, try to come in and invade and fuck with your project because it really seems to work for people really well when they do that. It's all about location, location, location. 227 puppets were constructed for the film. Jack Skellington alone had something like 400 heads for each of his expressions in the movie, which is pretty wild. Oh, and, yeah, uh, no, yeah, that's super key that... um. 
uh, nowadays for Leica Productions, it's like kind of de rigueur how they do it, where they 3D print all the individual uh, frames of a facial animation and mm. cycle those. Uh, because it, you can tell in a stop motion animation, like when the character is animated just by like physically moving the lips of the clay around, it's like a little bit flappy and weird. But uh, by switching out the 400 heads, Jack Skellington and Sally, who uh, because of her hair, she has uh, face masks that are also animated the same way, uh, is way more expressive and way more kind of uh, dynamic because it's not just a lump of clay getting like wiggled around. He's like, it's it's like traditional 3D, anim- it's like traditional animation, but done in the physical world, which is like uh-huh. a great technique and kind of key to the performance of Jack Skellington in the movie. Um, uh, nowadays, yeah, but nowadays that's like almost how it's all done. So they needed 400 individual heads because each head represent basically a single, like part of the a single frame of animation. Price drop, time to shop. Get to a Nordstrom Rack store today for first dibs on new markdowns. Now score even more, up to 70% off brands everyone loves at Nordstrom Rack. Denim, dresses, sneakers, tops, and more. Plus, get genius deals on jackets, sweaters, and boots for the whole family. Shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and save up to 70% with new markdowns. But hurry, deals this great won't last. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun... Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. In terms of art design, they had the concept of a pop-up book in mind when approaching the the project. Also, Halloween Town, very much based on German Expressionism. That is an art movement that emerged in Berlin in the 1920s. The 1922 silent film, you're probably familiar with Nosferatu, is a popular example of this. You could definitely see the one-to-one from that film to how they approached Halloween Town and all the characters there. However, Christmas Town is Dr. Seuss-inspired, especially the town of Whoville, obviously, going into that it's like bright and pretty and nice but kind of funky you know a little bit whereas the real world they made tried to make as simple and basic as humanly possible as like by the numbers and everything in its right place and orderly as possible to contrast the fun of the two other towns not only do you is uh the real world like pretty drab you don't see any adults faces ah yes in so like only children who are like just that much closer to the imaginary world of the holidays can exist in the movie while adults are like you almost it's almost they're beyond what is happening on screen they don't even exist on the same plane it's like a very clever choice so uh one thing they definitely had to toe the line of that we always talk about which is what i think makes this movie one of the things that makes this film stand out is keeping it creepy but not too creepy scary for the kids selick said for example There's a scene where Jack's love interest, Sally, tires of being holed up with the evil scientist. She wants out. 
The evil scientist grabs her by the arm and she pulls away until the arm actually tears off. Well, that could have been horrific, but instead of flesh and blood inside her, I had her stuffed with leaves. And then as she runs away, we see her arm being held by the scientist waving goodbye to her, which ends up being pretty funny. Other things that had to be tweaked, like the clown with the tearaway face. <laughs> Sel- I, <laughs> I love, love it, this. right? Selick said in an earlier version of that, when we tore his face away, it was a horrible, bloody mess. While I realized I might like this, it didn't fit the tone. So we just made it a black hollow. It's about pulling punches and winking. Death in this world is not really possible, mm. which I love that quote. Death in this world is not really possible. So amazing little touches that just never, ever pushed too far. Disney didn't feel that way, and that's why it became a touchstone picture. But mm-hmm. uh, but time, the test of time, I think, has, has, uh, has shown that children love this fucking movie and love this kind of creepy stuff. You know, we were just at uh, Henry's Halloween party and he had this little creepy clown in a box and we were all hanging out and like terrifying to us adults, right? It was like, oh, it's just like creepy clown in a box. There was this little girl there. She was like maybe five or something like that. And she was obsessed with the creepy clown in the box. (laughs) She loved the creepy clown in the box. She kept turning it on and making it go all crazy and stuff. And it was so fun to watch because little kids do, they love shit like that. And and, and it's a disservice to them to not uh, try to scare them and to not have things, elements like that. I mean, talk about Pee Wee Herman's Big Adventure. I always talk about how, you know, those movies that had like the large Marge moment in them were the ones I was obsessed with as a kid. I rented the animated Hobbit from Blockbuster like ten different times because, because it was it so fucking was creepy. Cre- yeah, because it creeped me out, and I, lo- I was drawn to it and loved it. So I, I I do just really appreciate that they put this together. And then it's so funny to see Disney scramble. We'll talk about it a little more in a little bit to uh, to essentially not show this movie to kids, <laughs> which which uh, you know I think completely bit them in the ass. So during this production time. Uh, this kind of freedom that they had was also kind of a weird thing because it was Henry Selick and his team of young animators that he had brought together and they're working long hours together. They're, you know, uh, doing reshoots. They're just like doing everything in their power. Uh, they had to invent a, a alarm system that would go off if one of the lights didn't turn on like it was supposed to hmm. because they were losing so many hours on uh, continuity errors because the lighting wouldn't match up from shot to shot. Like it's, it's back. It's bone brain fucking boner breaking work to do a stop motion animation picture. And so, uh, Did someone say boner pants? (laughs) Sorry. I apologize. I just want to apologize to the listeners. Never apologize. I do think we're funnier than the, um, Holden, Holden, listen, (laughs) if there's nothing we learned from the nightmare before Christmas, it's that you got to accept who you are. Because if you try and go outside your box, you will fail miserably. Don't try new things. You'll get it wrong. And almost at a glance, <laughs> I have boner <laughs> pants. Yeah! Back to you, Jake. Um, so Zero the Dog represents an impotent sexuality. In my Oh, oh my God. <laughs> Jesus, God, help us. Uh, I do want to talk about one sensitive subject while we're at it. One point of contention that seems like a big misstep in hindsight was that character, Oogie Boogie Man. The character's song is a Cab Calloway-inspired blues number uh, Burton uh, after Burton had seen him in a 1932 Betty Boop cartoon called Minnie the Moocher, featuring the song of the same name, which was Calloway's signature tune. 
Some of the lines the Oogie Boogie Man says just before the song are even pulled from a different Betty Boop cartoon, The Old Man of the Mountain. They're 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 just, just ripped off the page. Hold on, this is the 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 vibe that Oogie Boogie Man is specifically the era of America where the evilest music that you could possibly listen to is jazz. <laughs> the devil music jazz. Yes. Like you have to, to to understand why Oogie Boogie is like he is. You have to cast your mind back to the 40s and where you hear someone being like, Hey, baby, want to take it to the saxophone store? <laughs> Someone's like, Jesus Christ, hide my children. <laughs> they were they were smoking that devil's weed and playing their saxophones at the saxophone store. Uh, it was a terrible time to be alive. But uh, yeah, I got a paradise in my pocket. I play blackjack casually with friends. (laughs) (laughs) So still, this character seems to have some racial implications. And Caroline Thompson even (laughs) approached Tim Burton about it. Thompson said, first of all, he looks like a Ku Klux Klansman. Secondly, Oogie Boogie is an old Southern derogatory (laughs) phrase for an African-American. And I'm from Maryland, which is just on the cusp of the South. So I'm hyper aware of that and sensitive to it. I was just flipped out about it. I went to Tim, I went to Henry, and I said, we got to change this. And apparently she was just shot down by Tim Burton for being, quote, oversensitive. You know, it's the kind of thing that would absolutely have been given attention in today's era, right? But Mm -hmm. because we're in the back in the daytime, it's like, oh, nobody will even notice. You know what I mean? Like, that was the kind of treatment some of these sensitive topics were given, right? Mm -hmm. I will say, as a kid, I had no connection to that in my mind. I loved that character and loved that song still and and uh, thought that was like one of the coolest parts of the movie especially the visual change that happens when we finally meet the Oogie Boogie Man because uh, everything gets all neon and there's a this is a weird gambling theme for no reason and uh, uh, but everything like the color and everything changes and it was such a visual showcase that was so cool to see in the theater and really came out of nowhere after so many you know because he comes in what like an hour in 45 yeah. minutes in they but, like uh, mention him and then it's yeah. just kind of thrown uh if you really want to uh, experience the height of oogie boogie uh power you gotta check out the uh what's the the ps2 game oogie boogie's revenge which takes place a year after uh the set of the movie and has oogie boogie uh systemically conquering all the other halloween lands as an iron face huh. rule tyrant interesting uh, shout out to Ken Page, the voice actor who just nails the character, uh, nails that Cab Calloway impression. He also played King Gator in All Dogs Go to Heaven with a similar performance. Uh, but yeah, very interesting. I think that would have been different. I think they would at least change the name. Yeah. I feel like, I don't know, everything Spooky else aside. Man. Still works. Yeah, something, something. Or just the Boogeyman, but either way. Uh, uh, I will also say one one dark point in for at least Danny Elfman in the production Henry Selleck and crew felt his speaking voice, his acting voice as Jack, just didn't cut it. And they had to actually have Tim Burton approach him and fire him from the speaking Oh, role. you wish Tim Burton approached him. It, again, see, this is the new shit that from that fucking oh, episode. Oh, that show. Oh, I shouldn't have watched that episode of that show. It's so not, much so of the, I, it really was, it's upsetting how much new information that episode dumps. But uh, Tim Burton... Uh, and Henry made the decision to change uh, the speaking voice of the role, uh, replaced him with uh, Susan Sarandon's ex-husband, Chris Sarandon. Uh, and Tim Burton tells Caroline 
to break the news to Danny, which is, let's That's agree, funny. a real uh, a real stinky move. Real shitty move. And Danny Elfman talked about, and in that, in that show that will not be named, uh, he talked about how he really had to swallow his pride in that moment and dig deep to uh, carry on. That that must have sucked, but it must have been really bad. If it, it's, by the way, never noticed. That is a really seamless performance, by the way, by Chris Wren. And you might uh, recognize him as Prince Humperdinck in the film The Princess Bride. I never would have guessed that was two different people, singing versus uh, speaking. So really, really cool work on that. Uh, and uh, Elfman did also voice one of the Trick or Treat and the clown with the tearaway face. So they got in there a little bit with the acting. Uh, Burton pulled a couple of folks from his old Beetlejuice cast, including Catherine O'Hara as Sally. She does a great job. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it's weird. It's a performance I never would have picked out as Catherine O'Hara, but now that I know that it's her, it's very obvious to me. Uh, And then, of course, Glenn Shaddix is the mayor of Halloween Town. Moving on. He's great. uh, It's a great performance. He's a very talented (laughs) and enthralling actor. He he carries Beetlejuice. Imagine Beetlejuice without Glenn Shaddix. It would be unwatchable. Yeah, he kills it. He's a great actor. Paul Rubens of Pee Wee fame plays Locke, uh, one of the trick-or-treaters. And William Hickey plays Dr. Finkelstein. He was the cigar-smoking Uncle Lewis in National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. The uh, role of Santa Claus actually is a little bit complicated because originally, as kind of an homage to his first short film, Vincent, Uh, Burton really wanted Vincent Price to play the role of Santa Claus. However, and this is going to be one of the saddest things I've ever said, um, Vincent had reached a kind of advanced age and his Mm. health was failing, and he had recently lost his longtime wife shortly before the recording. And Selleck uh, just was like, he sounds too sad and sick to be Santa. Oh. Um, another attempted uh, voice actor was James Earl Jones, of all people, to play the voice of Santa Claus. And according to legend, uh, Selick and, uh, no, I think it was Selick and Elfman got into a screaming match with him while doing a test recording. And they, all, and they decided not to go with him either. Uh, I think Ed Ivory ends up doing a pretty good job. All things considered. Hell yeah. Yeah, I agree. Absolutely. Uh, Another source of drama was definitely around the ending. We already talked about it briefly, but this is where Tim Burton's bizarre rage comes into play. Selig said, We were sending storyboards to Tim by fax back, back then. No internet. He kept rejecting everything, and we were right up against this deadline. I realized we finally had to start on the animation. We had some technical challenges, too, because in that scene, uh, they're talking about the scene where the Boogie Boogie Man gets confronted by Jack. It's a big whole action sequence. Uh, I realized we finally had to start in the animation. We had some technical challenges, too, because that scene, it's like a gambling den, and we had these one-armed bandits that needed special mechanics. We also had to build a special jack with a flexible body to dodge some of the weapons used against him. Initially, Selick and team try to do this different ending with Dr. Finkelstein. Do you want to describe it for us? So it's storyboarded. Uh, I think you can find it in deleted scene footage if you buy the Blu-ray. But literally, the uh, basically, it's the exact same ending as you remember it, where the string gets unfurled and Oogie Boogie's uh, outer sack falls apart. Uh, but instead of uh, being completely made out of wriggling bugs, inside the suit is none other than Dr. Finkelstein, the evil mad scientist slash uh, horrifying father of Sally. 
And it plays out, the dialogue plays out literally like a Scooby-Doo episode. Like Jack's like, Dr. Finkelstein, it was you who was Oogie Boogie all along? Like it just, it's really yeah, it's corny. Yeah, goofy. Yeah, It completely sure. negates and, uh, like Oogie Boogie as, I, I mean, it's a great character because he represents kind of the, um, like actual horror that like yeah. even in the world of Halloween, there is like, we are scared of things that go bump in the night for a reason. There is in fact things that wish to do us harm in the night. And that's all that Oogie Boogie represents. Uh, and you know, the fact that he's like a collective of bugs that, is that awesome. like one by one, as he falls apart, they all identify as him. Even as a kid, I was like, Ooh, that's a fun touch. That's real. Yeah, that's really cool. Well, Tim Burton was super reasonable about his disliking of that ending, correct, Jake? Well, uh, they kind of pitched him on this ending when during one of uh, Burton's exceedingly rare visits to the production studio, uh, they describe him as having like an entourage full of people, kind of like a, a, a fancy executive in a 1950s movie with people being like, Sir, need your sign signature here. Like, how about the dailies on this? Like, yes, because, you know, he's working on Ed Wood. He's working on Batman Returns. He is like the center of the universe right now. And uh, he is so upset with this kind of uh, rogue element, you know, kind of this because, uh, you know, Selick basically was like, hi, I also want this control over this story. Uh, and just the audacity. It's Burton really yearns to keep control over his shit. Um, which, you know, for a auteur director means that his movies do feel uniquely from a singular voice, mm -hmm. but also they're a pain in the ass to work with. And he is so enraged that he kicks a, a hole through the solid drywall and the animators uh, immediately scrawl. Tim did this and they <laughs> cut it out and frame it. I love it, too, because they were like, how's your foot, Tim? He was like, it's fine. They're steel-toed boots. <laughs> he was Hot Topic before Hot Topic was even a thing. It's so hilarious. And then, hilariously enough, near the end of production, Caroline Thompson approaches Tim Burton, I think after like a screening of it even, uh, in order to see about, she's like, I still think I can make that ending stronger. Uh, and Thompson says... He basically turned around and started screaming and attacking an editing machine. They make Tim look like a 10-pound weakling. I kind of imagine that part, that scene where Mr. Burns, mm -hmm. uh, what does he add to attack? I forget, but he, he uh, tries to like dis attack something, and it's it's uh, pathetic looking. I'm beating you within an inch of your life. Yes, that's what it is. He's like, yeah, yeah. They make Tim look like a 10-pound weakling. These things are huge metal machines. You can't move off of the floor. Tim was there ramming it, screaming at me. I was okay. People have their ways of dealing with stress, and that was his, and that's fine. But I never got a chance to take another crack at it. <laughs> I just love it. He's like so crazy. Like anybody who mentions like changing the ending, he just fucking loses it <laughs> instead of just being like. No. I mean, I will say if you've been if you've had this fucking giant expensive thing like dangling over your head for three years straight, and then the screenwriter's like, "Hey, listen, I know it takes literally." Uh, a million man hours to shoot a single like second of this movie, <laughs> but I got some like fun ideas. <laughs> like but I would I can, also I be write like, some are new you words kidding? down? Yeah, yeah, I get that. I get that. You freaky sarcastic horse girl. What are you talking about? <laughs> 
<laughs> Caroline she is does a love horses. Big horse, by the way. Carol, yeah, big old horse girl. It's a big old horse girl. And of course, as we all know, the horse girl to goth girl pipeline is a straight fucking two. It's straight fucking straight on. You want to deny that, listener, but you fucking know it's true. But either way, this uh, this this arduous process finally comes to an end, and Disney takes a gander at the film and decides. Uh, it's not really a Walt Disney feature animation thing anymore. It's too dark for the kids. They're not going to like it. They're going to be too scared. Well, let's move it to the adult-themed Touchstone Pictures banner. Uh, and uh, also, we're going to add, much to the displeasure of a lot of people who worked on it, uh, we're going to add Tim Burton's to the beginning of this. It's going to be called Tim Burton's Nightmare Before Christmas. And uh, so that pissed Henry Selleck off for sure. And the film comes out. It, it barely makes a profit by Disney standards. And it would have completely faded into obscurity. But luckily, a little franchise called Blockbuster Video came was was all the rage at that time. And uh, it has this incredible second life on VHS and later DVD. Uh, apparently, Burton and Elfman were on a trip to Japan and they were just like going to different shops. There's all these, of course, these different cool like figurine shops and stuff in Japan. And they noticed there's all this like merch for the film. There's Jack Skellington figurines and all the different characters from the film. And they're like, wait a second. This thing is like not dead like we thought it was. Nothing dies in Halloween land, uh, does it? in Halloween town, does it, Jake? So this merch ends up exploding in the U.S. And especially... In a little store we know as Hot Topic. And of, of course, we've discussed that in that episode. But uh, also the film, so nice, you got to watch it twice. I mean, it's it's a Halloween and Christmas movie. And I think that also gives it these extra legs in this weird way. I, do, I never remembered it. the moment this movie popped. It just like was so yeah. visually distinctive that even the people who never saw it, def it definitely, like if you at least saw the trailers, it left an impression on you. So you like recognize the skeleton guy and the ragdoll girl. Uh, it did great on cable. It did great on DVD. It did great on VHS. It just like slowly rolled forward. And, uh, you know, Tim Burton's unique style with like this kind of children's illustration mixed with Edward Gorey kind of uh, Adams Family stuff is very marketable. It might as well be its own Sanrio Hello Kitty brand. It mm -hmm. looks good on a shirt, looks good on a hoodie. It's full of good iconography. It captures a vibe really well. Like it, it was almost built for merchandising because merchandising is just a solid tone and aesthetic on otherwise normal goods. That's kind of like the secret to a good merchandising character uh, vibe, brand, label. And I love how it became the thing it was inspired by. It became this must-watch yearly traditional piece just like mm -hmm. how the Grinch stole Christmas and you know Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer it really it, it, at least for me and for a lot of the people I know it is a standard film that you end up watching sometime in during the holiday season and I think that's really really cool that that happened the film was eventually embraced by Walt Disney Pictures it becomes a reissued reissued under the Walt Disney Pictures label and converted to Disney Digital 3D released in 2006 and they've continued to support it ever since even though they did give it the shaft early on uh, another thing good on you Tim Burton uh, avidly against doing a sequel or anything like that wishing to maintain a purity for the work. I think Henry Selleck was open to the idea, but uh, just a script uh, never came that was good enough. 
And of course, uh, of course, they were considering a live action remake. Hopefully, they're not doing that though. I don't. I, I really think this is truly a thing that should only exist as stop motion. I just don't see it any. I don't see how it works any other way. Uh, I mean, it works as you a can third make, like, person a stage action musical game, out of it. Uh, produced by the same <laughs> team at Capcom that did Devil May Cry. Yeah, I'm still talking about Night Before Christmas: Oogie's Revenge. All right. Have you ever wondered what uh, Jack Skellington looks like if he got the Kirby box art treatment? Look at the cover <laughs> of Nightmare Before Christmas: Oogie's Revenge on the PlayStation. Too. It is a. I mean, I know he also showed up in Kingdom Hearts. I know he also showed up in Disney Infinity. But uh, I think this is so funny that there is just a straight up character action Jack Skellington game in the world. Uh, also, weirdly enough, at the beginning of 2021, very recent, a sequel young adult novel was announced, and this will have Sally as the main character and take place after the events of the film. So there's something to look forward to, and luckily it's not another film, which I think would be a misstep, unless they did full stop motion. There is also a sequel manga uh, that takes place from the perspective of Zero, oh, cool. if you ever, if you're that Tony. big of a weed. Totally, totally. And I love how it was uh, inspired, or, or the art direction they went with was pop-up book. I believe there is a pop-up book that eventually came out as well for it, which makes a lot of sense. Uh, all right. I think that covers it. What else do you got? Uh, you can also buy a tarot deck. You can also <laughs> buy novelty dice based oh on my God. You can buy dice. You can also buy countless hoodies. You can buy literally any piece of uh, uh, commercially produced item with Nightmare I'm sure you could buy a shirt with Jackson on it that has the sleeves with the thumb holes in it and the purple stripes. Hey, those on sleeve the holes are earned, not made, man. <laughs> Uh, all right, I think that about covers it. Our episode on The Nightmare Before Christmas, a fun holiday episode for you guys. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you weren't too upset about the boner pants guy. Why would thing anyone be upset at that, Holden? Why, why? It was a misstep. What? I'm just going to say it. All right. Never apologize, Holden. It shows weakness. <laughs> Next week on the movies that made us, we'll be covering uh, Ghostbusters, probably. I Listen, don't know. Listen, if we had that fucking Netflix money and a film crew, uh, we would make. Hey, Netflix, this is our challenge. Give us $5 million and produce the Wizard and the Bruisers that made made you. <laughs> Wizard and the Bruiser presents The Closer. <laughs> All right, we'll get on that. Uh, thank you so much, everybody, for listening to our show. We greatly appreciate you. If you'd like to support us further, check us out on patreon.com forward slash whizbrew. We do weekly content for just $5 a month. I already mentioned the Sunday study session as well. Patreon.com forward slash whizbrew. Watch me. I stream. Hey, we both stream. I think we do. Uh, Twitch.tv forward slash Holdenators Ho. I actually do have Jake on semi-regularly now on our Tuesday night game night streams. And, uh, well, actually, I'm sorry. I have Puppet Jared on. We'll get to that in a second. Twitch.tv forward slash Holdenators Ho. I stream Monday, Tuesday, Fridays. Come on by. I love having Wizard of the Bruiser fans pop in and say hello. Um, but either way, Jake! Uh, yes, that's right. I also now stream i've created a vtuber avatar that i am comfortable existing in uh i hate being witnessed holding <laughs> i love being listened to hate being witnessed i hear that but if you go to youtube.com slash puppet jared that is where i stream on weekdays uh you can uh follow at puppet jared on youtube on twitter to uh see when i'm streaming uh i've been playing old school runescape we've been doing the classic jackbox gartic phone doodle fests uh, I, I believe right after we're recording, I'm about to launch into an hour and a half where I tier list all the diet sodas in America. Hmm. And if that has appeal to you, 
you will feel very welcome over at youtube.com slash I love it. All right. Well, there you have it. Hey, have a good one. And always remember, never stop bruising. And keep on whizzing. This show is made possible by listeners like you. Thanks to our ad sponsors. You can support our shows by supporting them. For more shows like the one you just listened to, go to lastpodcastnetwork.com. Price drop? Time to shop. Get to a Nordstrom Rack store today for first dibs on new markdowns. Now score even more, up to 70% off brands everyone loves at Nordstrom Rack. Denim, dresses, sneakers, tops, and more. Plus, get genius deals on jackets, sweaters, and boots for the whole family. Shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and save up to 70% with new markdowns. But hurry, deals this great won't last. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun... Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.